Support comes from the San Juan Islands. Spring in the San Juans can provide time to slow down and savor the scenery of quiet beaches, hiking, biking, and whale watching on Lopez, Orcas, and San Juan Island and Friday Harbor. Learn more at visitsanjuans.com. Set your mind to island time. Well, welcome to Friday, everybody, and welcome to the Week in Review. I'm Zeki Hamid. I'm in for Bill Radke today. And with me today are three exceptional journalists who will help me and all of you make sense of this week's news. So with me today are Crosscut and KCTS9 editor-at-large, Knut Berger. Hey, Knut. Hey. And Publicola publisher and editor, Erica Barnett. Welcome back, Erica. Thank you. Good to be here. And Seattle Times general assignment reporter Amanda Zoe. Hey, Amanda. Hi, everyone. All right. So you can also stream us uh, on YouTube if you really want to uh, take a look at us instead of just hearing us. You can also stream us on Facebook. And if you miss any part of the show, you could always revisit it on KUW.org or you can go to the Week in Review podcast. Okay, let's get to our first story. A King County inquest jury has concluded that two Seattle police officers used reasonable or justifiable force when they shot and killed Charlena Lyles in 2017. Charlena was a pregnant black woman and a mother of four. Erica, I want to start uh, with you. Can you give us the background on what happened on the day that she was killed? Yeah, um, Charlena Lyles was, as you said, a pregnant uh, mother of four who was in her apartment when she called 911 to report a burglary um, at her apartment that um, she said had happened some time before. Uh, two police officers, uh, Jason Anderson and Stephen McNew, showed up and um, they, uh, you know, according to their account of events, which is um, which is what we have, um, they began taking a report, walking around the apartment um, with her and when her demeanor changed and um, she uh, began acting, um, you know, again, in their account, threateningly towards them. Um, before they showed up at her house, they knew um, that she um, had called and had exhibited signs of uh, mental health issues and been in a mental health crisis um, with officers in the past at uh, just two weeks before, in fact. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's unclear to what extent they took that into account. Um, in any event, she at some point pulled out a, um, a small paring knife. Um, and the officers said that they uh, felt threatened by her, that she lunged at them, and they shot her seven times, um, killing her in her kitchen. Um, and uh, three of her children were in the apartment at the time, and they uh, were sort of quickly ushered out by uh, by police and put in the care of neighbors. So those are just kind of the basic facts as we understand them of what happened. Thank you. And uh, I want to talk about uh, what an inquest is um, and uh, how did the inquest process change recently? Canute, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the inquest process is, is kind of technical. It's not like an actual trial. Um, you know, evidence is presented to a jury that uh, is then given a set of instructions as to certain findings uh, that will then determine whether or not uh, shooting, for example, uh, was justified or not. Um, they rarely find for victims, um, partly because uh, the laws are written in such a way that there's a lot of uh, flexibility on the part of the police to respond uh, with force. Um, and, uh, you know, and the, the, the process has been tweaked, but, you know, I think this uh, particular finding shows that um, it is not necessarily a place where people will find uh, justice. So another thing to consider, and this is something that actually you brought up, Erica, which is uh, that Charlena had a history of mental illness, and her family said that she was going through a mental crisis that day. Amanda, if I can go to you on this one, how does that factor into the decisions that the officers made that day? Um, I guess what I've read about it is, I, actually, I'm not really sure how to answer this question. Um hmm I think when I was reading about this, a lot of what I thought about is how, you know, mental health and response and first responders, first responders um, has come up a lot recently. And, you know, a lot of the reason people say that we need to reimagine public safety is because police officers are not always trained to deal with these situations. They might not have the resources, even if they do have a crisis uh, responder hired by the department, they might not be available. Um, and then also, 
there's more emphasis on de-escalation techniques. And, and something I've been wondering is sort of, you know, what was an alternative response here? You know, was there de-escalation that they could have employed? Um, one thing that I was paying attention to while reading was also the whole discussion over the use of a taser. Um, my understanding is one of the officers requested a taser during this incident. There wasn't one available, uh, partially, be- I think, because it wasn't charged and he didn't have it on his person. Um, but then what I found really interesting is that apparently the jury in this inquest said unanimously that a taser wouldn't have been appropriate mm. uh, because it was like a, you know, clo- it was like a small apartment. But then I guess my question to Paul is that is, you know, if not a taser, what else could have been used that wasn't lethal? Right. You know, one thing that I find actually fascinating is is we have a, a, a community feedback club, by the way, which is a, a way we ask listeners to to weigh in on certain things. And uh, we asked our listeners through this community feedback club this question. How do you think police departments could update their policies to improve how they handle scenarios with people experiencing mental health crises? And here's what some of them had to say. We had uh, Holly and Kent, Rebecca in Seattle, Margaret and Everett and Irene in Kenmore, all suggested mental health professionals should accompany police officers on calls that may involve a person experiencing a mental health crisis. However, here's the fascinating thing. We got a comment from a social worker on the SPD's crisis response team. Uh, So I would love to get your reactions to what he said. Uh, He said, the crisis response program has been operating since 2010. We respond with uniformed officers to active 911 crisis calls and do post-crisis follow-up. We often accompany officers to calls that involve weapons and or violence, but if a scene is too dynamic, unsafe, we do not have the training to effectively intervene until the scene is made safe by officers. I do not know of any social workers who are equipped to safely intervene in these situations, and I fear that there is an existing assumption that social workers have magic de-escalation abilities with the thought that social workers can manage dangerous situations. I do, however, sincerely believe that there's a wide variety of scenarios where social workers could be utilized to handle a specific subset of crises calls, which SPD currently responds to. And he mentions a couple of programs like the Kahoot uh, uh, program and the Denver Star uh, uh, already operate, and he says that he believes that Seattle could implement um, programs like these. Any reaction to, to, to that? Well, I think, you know, I think to put this in context, this was not um, technically a crisis call initially. So, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, I I think that the situation that the officers were dealing with was more something that, you know, I mean, maybe it's possible that it could have been identified as a crisis call in some way, but it was a burglary call. Um, And I think the question is, you know, whether there were de-escalation tactics that the officers could have used and if, you know, they could have done something differently beyond, you know, shooting this woman seven times in her apartment when she was holding a paring knife. Again, you know, we only have the officer's version of events here. Um, And I think that's I think that's really important to keep in mind. You know, they say and testified that she, you know, lunged at one of them with this um, with this little knife. But there were other, you know, there were other sort of signs that she was in a mental health crisis and there was information that they had available to them beforehand. Uh, You know, the reason that that she was in a mental health crisis, you know, according to her family, was that it was triggered by domestic abuse. Um, And, you know, none of that sort of came up at the inquest itself. But uh, but it's important context that the officers could have considered. I'm not an expert, obviously, in you know, in the de-escalation training, but it, it seems uh, just looking at the face of it and even looking at the officer's version of events that um, this was a lot of force used against someone who was clearly, you know, in the middle of going through something mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, armed with a paring knife, but, you know, they, they had an open door behind them. And so I think there's an open question about whether they could have done something differently. Yeah. So what does that mean go for this going forward? Um, uh, prosecutor's office, anything like that? What happens next? Well, the prosecutor's office says they're going to make a determination as to whether to file criminal charges. Um, so that's kind of the next step. Um, it's, I mean, it's pretty unlikely, um, but it's you know possible. So that's 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 the next step going forward. Right. Um, after that, you know, Bruce Harold, mayor, has said that he wants to um, to really look at. Um, whether, you know, whether this, whether the situation could have been handled differently, essentially the issues I was talking about, the training stuff. So he's saying, you know, 
Uh, could there be more, you know, yet more reforms and yet more trainings? Um, I think that's going to be really unsatisfactory to people who, you know, are um, in the uh, in the activist community and the advocacy mm-hmm. community who say that, you know, we've been trying reform and training for a really long time and it hasn't produced different results. Right. And one of the things that really kind of gets lost, uh, I think, sometimes in a story like this is how people are affected by a tragedy like this. How do they move on? Uh, I just want to play a a quick uh, just a quick thing here. This is Katrina Johnson, Charlene Liza's cousin, talking about the experience uh, of the inquest uh, and what was that like? It was very painful. And I don't know where my family goes from here. I don't know how we begin to pick up the pieces after this process. That's something that uh, I, I really think about is just how do you move on and, and what do you do next? This is, I just want to acknowledge the, the tragedy of this and, and how it affects uh, 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 Charlena's family. Um, one other thing here, I, want, I mentioned the, the, the Feedback Community Club. Some additional comments that we got, um, we had like you know, Frank and Bashan Island, Shannon, North Seattle, Suna and Olympia all mentioned uh, prior to prioritizing the use of tasers, but as Amanda told us, um, uh, testimony, I guess, was there that maybe a taser wouldn't have been uh, effective. Um, But also Samuel and Leanne in Tacoma and Linda and Issaquah all expressed doubt that reform was possible and suggested defunding or disbanding. So final thoughts here from from anyone, really. I just want to know your reaction to somebody says, this is... um, nothing is going to change. It's just almost hopeless. I feel like the, the a sense of a loss of hope about reform. Uh, anything that you're hearing out there about that? Uh, about that comment from the social worker, I, I do feel like often when we talk about, you know, first response in situations like this, there's sort of this false dichotomy of like, okay, they know immediately whether it's like a mental health crisis or if it's like a violent safety situation. But the reality is that most 911 dispatchers have like, I think it's like 90 seconds or something to make a Mm -hmm. determination on whether to call fire or police. And that's pretty much like the two options they have. Um, But if you talk to most first responders, like most of them have a situation in mind where they thought the situation was safe and then, you know, something happened and it made it feel different. And I think this just all shows that when it comes to first response, we have to imagine people more holistically. Like it's not just mental health or safety. Like these things are often intertwined. And I think, first responders have to be more equipped to deal with these dynamic situations. Yeah. Knut, anything else on this before we leave? Well, obviously, I think there's a bigger societal problem. Uh, The institution of the police, you know, is a reflection of a larger society. Uh, And, uh, you know, so... There's some really big issues that we need to deal with there in terms of what we what we consider good policing, what we consider acceptable. And that that is, uh, I think, a, a, a tough thing that all of us in the city and, and people across the country are wrestling with. How do you find some kind of balance um, and can can you, you know, find that? I also want to just go to the mental health thing. Um, clearly the family in this case are victims as well of this event. And, um, you know, hopefully they will be able to access uh, something to help them with their anger and their grief um, to help them deal with the trauma. But I think the un kind of largely unspoken thing is police officers themselves are dealing with trauma on, mm-hmm. you know, an almost daily basis and there's a culture among police of not getting counseling, mm-hmm. not getting help with their own um, PTSD or, you know, whatever they're dealing with. And I sometimes think that um, in some of these reactive situations, um, it often, um, you know, comes back to the officers involved and how clearly they're thinking or the kinds of challenges that they're dealing with on a daily basis that they need help with. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just think there, 
there's sort of a whole lot of threads here. Yeah, well put. So the, the, by the way, for the folks listening, the Community Feedback Club, is, a, as I said, is a texting club that you can opt into. All you need to do is just go to kuw.org slash feedback to sign up. And if you do sign up, we'll just send you periodic texts asking for uh, feedback or story ideas. Okay, we're going to take a, a quick break here, and we'll be uh, right back talking about the disproportional influence the Catholic doctrine has on our health care system in Washington. Welcome back to the Week in Review. I'm Zeki Hamid. I'm in for Bill Radke, and today I'm joined by Crosscut and KCTS9 editor-at-large Knut Berger, Publicola publisher and editor Erica Barnett, and the Seattle Times breaking news and enterprise reporter uh, Amanda Zoe. So when we think of Seattle... We don't really associate ourselves with the Catholic Church, uh, but uh, Naomi Ishisaka from the Seattle Times wrote this week that a surprising amount of abortion access in our state is under the control of the Catholic Church. In an article titled, Even in Liberal Washington, the Catholic Church has too much influence on abortion access, Naomi Ishisaka concludes that having the right to abortion does not mean you have access to it. So, Amanda, I want to start with you here. This seems to be happening because of hospital mergers. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it seems what hap- what's happening is that, you know, maybe you have a secular hospital group and then you have one that's um, affiliated with the Catholic Church. They merge and then all of a sudden the services being offered changes. Um, so I think in the column, Naomi wrote about how some uh, systems aren't offering elective abortions anymore. And they, I think one of them clarified that, you know, we'll offer it in cases where the mother or person who's pregnant, um, you know, if their life is endangered, we'll perform it. And then another organization, um, I think this was Swedish, they faced criticism and then ended up partnering with Planned Parenthood to underwrite uh, abortion coverage. Um, but it, it all goes to show that... Um, I think the point of her column was that, you know, legally abortion is protected here in Washington, but access is a different system um, and is a different story. Yeah. Erica, uh, you've been actually talking about this for a while now, but it doesn't seem that people have paid uh, much attention to to, to the story. So uh, how did so many of our hospital beds come under the control of Catholic doctrine and what are the implications of that? Yeah, well, as Amanda said, I mean, it's just been a process of mergers that have been sort of continually approved. Um, I, I, uh, I worked for a couple of years at um, a pro-choice organization, NARAL. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and this was this was when I was a, a comms person. And one of the things that I was just constantly trying to get people to pay attention to was this mergers issue. I mean, it, I and we as an organization, because uh, it, it's been going on for many years. I just kind of in prepping for this uh, for the show, I, I looked up some old stories. I mean, this was. Uh, something the New York Times start was sounding the alarm about uh, ten years ago, um, and uh, and it's it's never stopped. So um, as of uh, before the before the most recent set of mergers, forty one percent of hospitals in Washington State were run under Catholic doctrine, and what that means is that you know essentially the bishops, the Catholic bishops, a group of um, a group of men um, affiliate, you know, in the church determine what the policy is based not on medical need, but based on religious doctrine. So in practice, that means, you know, not just that so- so-called elective abortions, which um, the Catholic church is defining as, you know, those that are um, for reasons other than saving a person's life um, are not allowed. Um, but it also, you know, bans things like uh, medical aid uh, in dying. Um, death with dignity um, mm-hmm. is not allowed. Uh, birth control, um, especially things like IUDs, miscarriage management. And if you go, if you go in and you're having a miscarriage, you know, they have to decide whether, you know, are you really in danger of dying or can you go home for a while and, um, and, you know, experience that alone. So it's, it's been a problem for a really, really long time. I'm really glad that Naomi Shisaka uh, brought this up, but you know, it's not, it's not a new issue and it's not one that, um, that the state has really done anything about. Um, in fact, this very legislative session legislation that, um, would have, um, introduced just new reporting requirements about mergers, uh, never even made it to a committee. So there's never been uh, any urgency mm-hmm. about it and there hasn't, uh, there isn't really now. And I think, like, can you, what, do you know the percentages of, of Catholics in, in Washington? Is this really? 17%. 17%. Identify, self-identify, according to the Pew, Pew study, which studies religious habits of 
every state. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so the, the dominance of, you know, Catholic medicine uh, in comparison to the number of Catholics. Now, we know that not all Catholics are um, anti-abortion. Uh, any of them are pro-choice. Um, if you add evangelical Christ, uh, Christians, uh, that's another 25% of the population, probably the largest single group other than just people who identify as Christian uh, uh, generally. And of course, it's interesting because uh, Washington is particularly unchurched. Mm-hmm. And we have one of the largest percentages of people who don't identify with any religion, 32%. That's the, the biggest single number in the state. Um, and the Northwest and the Northeast, particularly New England, are, are famous for their the, the number of religious skeptics mm-hmm. uh, there. And it's interesting what uh, Erica is saying, you know, is that this thing has been sort of ha- quietly happening over time and people watching it have been very concerned about it. But I think with this Supreme Court decision versus Roe, there's sort of a new awakening I remember when uh, Dino Rossi, Republican, ran for governor, uh, and uh, he was uh, anti-abortion and uh, said when he was asked, you know, well, Roe is settled law, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't do anything about it. Well, now we're finding that Roe isn't settled law and it's all getting thrown back to the states. So I think I think, uh, you know, Erica's point about the approval of these mergers and and the fact that medicine should be dictated by science and not theology, I think, is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Do you see any of you see any changes going forward? I mean, is there going to be a renewed urgency to address this in the legislature, for example? I mean, there's a lot of jurisprudence that says, you know, that these mergers are incredibly hard to um, to. to prevent. Um, but, you know, I think there is room for legislation, certainly around the fact that some of these, uh, you know, institutions, a lot of these institutions are um, are publicly funded in part. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think as with so many things, um, you know, on the, on the state and local levels to protect abortion rights and to protect other types of rights that are threatened now, uh, the time to act was 20 years ago. And, when we're looking at, you know, Washington state, it isn't just that 40, you know, 40 to 50 percent of institutions of hospitals are controlled by the Catholic Church. Um, it's also that in a lot of counties, you know, there there are no institutions that are not there are no hospitals that aren't um, Catholic controlled. Um, and so, you know, in Seattle, we do um, we do have I mean, one of the arguments is, well, you can just choose a different uh, different hospital in Seattle. We do have choice, although I would say, you know, if you're calling an ambulance for a miscarriage that's, you know, um, that's gone, you know, uh, to the point where you need to get to the emergency room, you don't really have that much of a choice. But um, but, you know, this is this is a huge problem in rural areas. um, And I I'm not optimistic that there's a lot that can be done now because these mergers have already taken place. Yeah. Okay. Anything else from anybody on this before we move on to our next one? Oh, just really quickly. Yeah. I think the, the 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 so-called right to die aspect is also really important. Um, I, I have a, f- a family member who had a, a catastrophic medical emergency and was taken to a Catholic hospital. She had a signed directive saying that she wanted life support pulled if she was in that state and they refused to do it. And when you're dealing in a situation like that, where you're already traumatized in terms of the family member and the decision that needs to be made and carrying out their their legal wishes and having opposition to that at that moment, it was exceptionally cruel. And uh, I think that's another important piece of this that was touched on. Um, it, you know, it, yeah, I, I just get kind of speechless about it. it but isn't uh, that, don't we have a law, though, about uh, end-of-life care? Um, so I'm wondering, like, does can the hospital supersede that? Or am I wrong? Well, we, we do have, uh, you know, the, the right to die. That That's a particular, mm-hmm. um, a particular law that pertains to terminal patients mm-hmm. who choose to, you know, enter that program. You know, most uh, hospitals will abide by signed... Uh, documents 
mm-hmm. the kind of thing, you know, it's a different version of what Erica was talking about in terms of thinking ahead, you know, that if you're in that kind of a situation, how do you want to be treated? And, and uh, in my experience or from what I've heard, mostly those are followed. Mm-hmm. Um, this, the, the event I'm talking about occurred in a different state. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the uh, law was there. Um, yeah. Uh, Amanda, anything else on this? Um, I guess one of the things I wasn't aware of until I moved here is that, um, I guess like the department of health is aware of this in that they say that they'll cover your abortion, even if your personal insurance plan doesn't. But I guess, you know, it's different that, you know, the DOH saying we'll cover it versus like our patients being told that when they're not being offered an abortion, like, are they being walked through the process of, you know, you have a right to have this paid for. Um, I I think it all comes down to patient access and whether people can navigate the system. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's it's definitely uh, a a surprising thing, even though uh, folks like Erica have been talking about this for uh, a while now, but now it's it's coming back into the forefront. We're going to switch gears a little bit here and uh, talk about uh, the flu pandemic in in 1918. You wrote this uh, article in Crosscut uh, this week saying that when when the current pandemic hit in 2020, there were lots of comparisons to the 1918 flu pandemic. And you talk about the reactionary period that followed the flu pandemic. And uh, it has lots of similarities to some extreme reactions we're seeing right now. And, you know, I'm not talking about, the, you know, the parties about the Roaring Twenties and all that. What I really found fascinating about your article is that the extreme movements against immigration, white supremacist movements, extreme politics. So uh, give us a little bit of history here. Describe what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the, the uh, 1918 so-called uh, pandemic, which lasted into the early 1920s, uh, and and the COVID nineteen are not exactly parallel, uh, but but there's a lot of historical rhyming going on. Um, the nineteen twenties, I mean, we, we, like you said, we, I mean, we tend to think of the jazz age and this period of kind of exuberance and and uh, you know wild dealings on Wall Street. But it was a it was really a period when you look at it where um, there was a tremendous political reaction to modernity. And you saw the Ku Klux Klan uh, had its second, you know, its resurgence, um, which, uh, you know, began in the teens, but just really blossomed in the 20. And it was almost entirely in the North and the West. Um, It was centered in the Midwest and and the Far West. Um, Literally millions of Americans joined the Klan and they were promoting Americanism, anti-immigration, anti-Catholic, there was a whole um, series of things, and uh, they took over state legislatures and and uh, and towns uh, all over the place, including in Washington and Oregon. So, uh, at the same time, you had this uh, real backlash in terms of immigration. You had uh, it here in Washington, we had uh, anti-Japanese uh, laws uh, went into effect in the early 1920s. 1924 was a Washington congressman who sponsored the immigration bill that basically banned all Asians. Uh, he called it a, a bulwark against alien blood. Uh, and not only did it pass and become national law, um, but it was highly popular both with the Klan and with the general public. Um, you had a resurgence of eugenics-oriented laws that allowed forced sterilization of people who were dubbed to be, um, you know, determined to be uh, threats to society because they were, uh, <laughs> you know, pregnant, poor, black women, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and for other reasons too. So um, I think I think it was a period where World War One had had a big. A traumatic effect on the country, the pandemic, both of which had sort of um, people had seen a kind of uh, intervention by government that they had never seen before. In World War One, there were there was rationing, there was a draft, there were uh, very tough laws uh, that came uh, in terms of what you could say uh, about the government without being thrown in jail for treason. Um, 
And then the pandemic, uh, which was mostly enforced at a local level, but there was resistance to masks, frustration with public health and that kind of thing. And so I think there was maybe people were kind of groomed for rebellion and you, you saw Republicans sweep into office uh, both in the state and nationally very conservative Republican presidents on the idea of a return to normalcy, mm. normalcy being, you know, the 1880s. Mm. So, yeah. So so we're seeing some of these things happen now. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you know, for Erica or Amanda, if you see contrasts between that kind of backlash in the 20s and today's backlash. Well, I mean, I think, you know, one difference, I mean, as, as Knut said, it's, you know, it's a rhyming situation. It's not, it's not parallel. I mean, one difference, of course, is that we're now a globalized society. So, you know, both, both the pandemic itself and, you know, reactionary politics um, are not um, contained to a region or, you know, even a country. Um, You know, I think um, to bring it, to bring it to local politics and not, and again, not to say this, not to say these are comparable things, Mm -hmm. but I think that, um, you know, one thing that we're seeing on the local level in every area across uh, the United States is that, you know, we have a lot of things that happened because of the pandemic, um, including, you know, the decline of businesses, small businesses, downtowns, um, the increase in visible homelessness, uh, attrition from police departments, um, things that, you know, that are directly p- pandemic related in many cases, um, being sort of uh, blamed on people that are not responsible for them. Um, and, uh, you know, and I would say uh, in Seattle, we've seen homeless people blamed for a rise in, uh, in a rise in crime, um, the decline of downtown, the fact that businesses are boarded up. Um, and we've also seen, um, again, just locally, and, and not to say this is comparable to um, what happened in the 1920s, but, you know, a sort of um, uh, revisionism about policing and an almost kind of worshipful approach to police, you know, that it's, we went from, you know, defund the police um, very briefly in 2020 to, we need to fund the police and fund them more at all costs and to do anything we can in our power to increase the size of the police force. And I'm saying that that is what local government policy is right now. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a, it is a mini backlash and I think it has, um, you know, put some of the wrong people um, or turned some of the wrong people into targets, including people who are living unsheltered. Um, so that I mean, that's that's the parallel that I see locally. Um, but um, I, I don't know, maybe there are maybe there are better parallels at the national level that Knut or Amanda could point to. Yeah, Amanda, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I guess I I often have a hard time with these kind of questions comparing it to, you know, another era, which as Erica pointed out, you know, we weren't a globalized society, you know, we were isolated in 2020, but you still had the internet for better or for worse. Um, but, you know, it's a different experience. And I wonder how people in the 1920s weathered isolation from the pandemic versus how they weathered it today. Mm-hmm. Um I, I do feel like there is sort of sometimes this call for like a back to normal, um, right? Like I feel like Joe Biden kind of like ran on that platform as like, I'll be boring, I promise. Um, but um, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's important to ask, you know, what there, there's always this like hearkening to like the good old days. Um, and maybe that's what people are seeing like 2019 and 2018 is now. But I don't know. I think it's always worth questioning, you know, who was actually benefiting during that time period. Well, I, I got to say, I, I do think it is a, a fascinating article, and uh, there are some of those similarities that I'm seeing now with extreme movements that I think maybe we should kind of pay attention to. Um, but uh, it's on Crosscut. Everybody, you can you should go and uh, and read that. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break here, and then we're going to come back and talk about the Herald Administration's uh, new program with uh, removing encampments from sidewalks.
Welcome back to Week in Review. I'm Zeki Hamid. I'm in for Bill Radke. And today I'm joined by Crosscut and KCTS 9 editor-at-large, Knut Berger, Publicola publisher and editor, Erica Barnett, and the Seattle Times general assignment reporter, Amanda Zoe. Um, okay, uh, Erica, you wrote this article this week, and I want to talk about it a little bit here. Uh, you wrote that Mayor Harrell's Strategic Initiatives Director, Tim Burgess, sent a memo to King County Regional Homelessness Authority Director Mark Dones titled, A New Approach to Tent Encampment on sidewalks and other transportation rights of way. In the memo, the new administration outlined a zero-tolerance strategy toward people living on sidewalks in which campers that remain will be given only two hours' notice to leave. And uh, you also mentioned that there's a scoring system that allocates scores to encampments based on a set of criteria, including violent incidents, fires, proximity to parks or children, and sidewalk obstructions. So there's a lot there, but uh, tell us a little bit more about what you found. Yeah, so um, so it is kind of two stories there, um, The uh, but I think they are very much related. The sidewalk strategy, um, I want to say up front, was never implemented um, in the form that it was drafted, but you described it and that's exactly what it would have done, you know, enabled the city to say uh, that a tent or an encampment is an obstruction, it's got to be out of there in two hours and we're going to use police to enforce that. Um, what they ended up doing, um, and you know, and I don't know the the current status of this strategy, um, except that it isn't in place. What they ended up doing was implementing a separate policy downtown that is it's called the, um, the the King County Regional Homelessness Authority and the city are doing jointly that is called the Partnership for Zero Zero, meaning um, zero unsheltered homeless people in downtown Seattle um, through uh, you know trying to shelter people and provide them services and theoretically housing. Um, so, but I do think that 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 scuttled strategy um, informs the other part of the story, which is that the, the mayor's office did go forward with the plan of assigning points to various uh, situations and encampments. And if you get enough points, uh, the encampment is swept. Um, this is something that the city, you know, this is a uh, you know, so-called database strategy, and it's something that the city has tried to do in the past. Um, during past administrations, this is not the first uh, go round for this kind of thing. And it's really, really difficult because, you know, they assign points based on things like, you know, was a fire reported? Um, How many RVs are there? How many tents are there? Was there, you know, a shooting? Was it fatal? And there are there are issues with all of those things um, that, you know, and and I would say they, they may or may not mean that an encampment is more dangerous or more of a concern or more of an obstruction. Um, so I, I think there's no perfect system. And I think pretending that there is through, you know, something that looks like data is always going to be pretty mm-hmm. problematic. Do, does anyone, you know, uh, Amanda, Knud, uh, do, do you think that this scoring system, you know, uh, is this an improvement over what we have now? Is there merit to it? I guess I I appreciate that there's more transparency about what they consider to prioritize for a suite because i think especially among you know even the even people who are housed um but especially among people who are homeless there's such a perception that sweeps happen arbitrarily you know there's no you know when do they happen how long does it happen after a notice like there's just so much confusion there so i feel like having some information of like oh yes like the mayor does care if there's been like a shooting Mm -hmm. is helpful I think what I took away from reading this is that Mayor Bruce Harrell really is zeroing in on visible homelessness or homelessness that, you know, has reported metrics with it, like fires. Because, um, you know, there there are a lot of people who live unhoused, but don't live in visible areas. And, you know, I, I wonder, like, how do they get access to services if, like, they don't end up on this scoring system because they're not blocking a business or because no one has reported a fire or mm. that there's a lot, large amount of trash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Knut, uh, anything to add to that? I'm, I'm wondering. Uh, yeah. Well, let me just uh, get your reaction first. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I can understand why you might want to have something that was a little more quantitative in terms of how you're making decisions. And obviously if there's a particular, uh, public safety concern, you know, that that might get a higher priority. Um, but, you know, I do, uh, these things can be extremely arbitrary. Um, it's, you know, it, it, of course, it doesn't address the issue about, well, if you, if you sweep them, <laughs> uh, where do they go? Right. 
if if they're really that much trouble, uh, you know, what what neighborhood is is are they going to go to? Uh, you know, so there's still this huge elephant in the room, which is housing. The other thing that I just have a, a kind of an instinctive negative reaction to is any program that has zero tolerance. <laughs> um, I mean, we're human. We live in a complex society. You could, you know, you, you're never going to get, you know, everything to zero. Um, and I know that's kind of an aspirational thing, but it also to me suggests an attitude that is not necessarily uh, realistic. Well, I also just just quickly on the on the the issue of transparency, I I do I should add that I mean the story was based on a records request. I've asked the Herald administration, as have many other reporters, what their criteria are many 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 times, um, and it, the the administration has actually treated it like it's proprietary. So the um, so the documents that I got um, you know are only transparent in the sense that um, I they provided them in response to records requests and I published them on my website. But I think the, the, the Herald administration has actually been kind of secretive about this, um, not suggesting there's anything nefarious there, but they they have not been transparent. Um, and, and just quickly to, to Knut's point, I mean, I, I do think, you know, there is a debate in this city that is kind of an eternal debate about where do we want homeless people to go because we're sure not going to provide them with enough housing. Um, that's that's never been something we've done. Um, you know, what a what a radical idea. Um, and and the question really is, do we want them to be invisible in places like the jungle, which was cleared under the Murray administration, or do we want them to be visible where, you know, theoretically we can offer them services and shelter? Um, and, you know, it's been kind of back and forth. And I think a policy of, of zero tolerance or, you know, or just sweeping people once they reach a certain number of points um, points to like, let them all go back to the jungle um, or someplace like that. And I think that's, you know, that's a likely result if we don't actually invest in housing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there's one thing that kind of uh, I heard Mark Doan speak uh, one time, executive director of the Regional Homeless Authority, and uh, I remember one thing that really stuck with me when he was talking about just uh, not only about their approach to all of it, but really what the solution is. And he goes, "I'll leave you with just these words: It's all about money, and that's it." And that always kind of stuck with me. Okay, we're going to actually squeeze one more story here, and we only have a, a kind of a few minutes for that, but I think it's an important story to, to kind of address. Um, um, since the pandemic uh, began, Seattle's school enrollment has been uh, plummeting. In fact, in the fall, the district expects the smallest number of students it's seen in the last seven years, according to district projections. And that will lead to staffing changes and the amount of funding that a school gets. Um, so I guess my question is, what is the short-term and long-term impact of this drop in enrollment? Um, anybody can take this one. Well, I mean, the short-term impact is uh, some schools are going to lose a lot of funding. I mean, your funding is based on how many students uh, you're serving, largely based on student enrollment numbers. Um, There are probably a lot of reasons why this is happening, but I I do think the pandemic is part of it. Um, uh, You know, people having made a decision to make a change, as to where, you know, whether the kids are going to be schooled from home or not, or what, you know, alternative uh, groups. I have two grandchildren in Seattle public schools and, you know, the masking or not masking policies, uh, you know, there hasn't been a lot of enforcement or transparency about COVID rates at schools and, and and that kind of thing. And I, I know parents get, uh, you know, particularly the phase that we're in, mm-hmm. you know, very concerned about uh, safety and health. And if you have the option of going to another school that might have stricter uh, behavior or whatever, uh, you know, that may seem to be an option. So it seems to be very much of the moment, but I'm not an expert. So. Yeah, and I think that's what's kind of fascinating. I think, Amanda, you, you pointed out actually in an earlier email when you know when we're just kind of corresponding that the enrollment drop is in wealthier neighborhoods. Uh, so I, I find that actually fascinating because uh, some people have opted, you know, for private schools. So if it is in part due to COVID, what are private schools offering that public schools aren't? Why are you know parents taking their children out of these and going to private school if they can afford it? 
well, I do not have kids, so I cannot speak fully to this decision. Um, but I mean, you know, no surprise to anyone, parents want the best for their kids. Uh, that, But, you know, in our current education system where wealthier families who have access to homeschooling or private schools, you know, kind of creates this, uh, I mean, I've been calling it sort of like the nice white parents problem, which is mm. that, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting that the story points out that it's not Seattle's poorest school districts that are impacted by this. And it's also not really high schools. It's mostly that kindergarten and I think elementary age students right. in places where you know, there are parents who have made a choice to put their kids in public school and clearly could afford to also find another option. Um, but, you know, I imagine it has a lot to do with perception of masking, having control as a parent in the school, um, maybe pedagogical decisions on how they're teaching, remote versus virtual, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and I'm wondering what what happens to people living in these wealthy neighborhoods or districts, but they can't afford to go to either homeschooling or a private school, but they still live in these neighborhoods, but they can't afford that. I'm I'm wondering if these are the people that are mostly affected by this. One of the things the article points out is staffing changes. Um, You know, staffing changes happen regularly for districts, but it's sort of more dramatic this year because of the drop of enrollment. So I imagine that must be one way that these schools are really feeling the change. Yeah. Erica, anything on this? Yeah, I'm really I'm curious what I'm curious what the sort of long term impact is going to be. Um, the article and I also don't have kids, so um, don't have a direct stake in these decisions. But I but I'm curious, you know, if there is going to be a long term um, sort of decline in enrollment, what the impact that is going to have on the on the school district's budget right now, they are still kind of being supplemented to some extent by COVID uh, relief dollars. Um, but, you know, I also think that that sometimes these things do resolve themselves on their own, uh, you know, looking at the fact that it's mostly very young children um, who have not been able to be vaccinated, um, who have been, uh, you know, sort of pulled out of kindergarten. Um, Washington State doesn't have compulsory uh, schooling until age eight. Um, so I can, you know, I can see people with the privilege and the ability to make that decision doing that because they don't want their kids to get sick. Um, you know, it's also possible that uh, one reason for enrolling kids in private schools, if you can afford to, is, you know, there's more maybe more consistency. I mean, there's been a lot of kind of um, debate about uh, policies at Seattle Public Schools, you know, changing and um, and parents not always knowing um what the, you know, what the policy is and what they're going to be responsible for doing. And I can see that as a parent, you might want a little more uh, predictability in knowing, you know, your kid's going to go to school at a certain time um, and school's not going to end, you know, abruptly or you have hours changed, things like that. But, you know, this is, <laughs> this is kind of the, um, the exact, uh, you know, the perfect example of a wait and see story, because I mm. think, you know, we're, we're looking at a very small period of time, um, and with without a lot of ability to predict what's going to happen in you know four or five years, both yeah. like both budget wise and enrollment wise. Right. Yeah, Canute, anything else on this? I was just going to say when my grandkids uh, goes to is in kindergarten at a, a neighborhood public school in a fairly well a neighborhood that has a lot of well to do people in it, and a lot of them send their kids to public school. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, you know, it may be a percentage thing, but there there are plenty of people with resources and whatnot who uh, are sending their kids to public school, particularly at the on the young end. Right. Yeah. You know, I have a, a, a an eight year old, almost nine, so she's going to be going into third grade. And we live in Shoreline, though, not in, in Seattle. But I remember when she was going into kindergarten, we were just really, really hoping that she's going to get into her neighborhood school and not, you know, someone far away. And we had to wait and see. There was waiting lists and all that. And this year, now they sent out that they're opening it up to other neighborhoods if they want to opt into that. So you can, you know, we really felt that, you know, the drop in enrollment is not just for Seattle schools. It is uh, regional. Okay, folks, uh, we just have, uh, you know, about three minutes or so here to the end of the show, and uh, which is great. We have a little bit of time to talk about what's making us smile this week and what we're looking forward to. Um, I certainly have a, a few things that, I'll, uh, that are making me smile, but I want to know about you. So uh, what's making you smile? Let's start with Amanda. 
Uh, I've been enjoying the good weather. Uh, you know, knock on wood, don't tell anyone I said that because <laughs> the moment I say it, it's going to turn terrible. Um, but yeah, I've really enjoyed being able to finally pull out my shorts and eat lunch outside. Um, and I've really also enjoyed being able to bike after work and get to explore the bike network we have here around Puget Sound. Nice. Summer is uh, maybe finally here. <laughs> Erica, let's make an easy smile. Yeah, similarly, um, I uh, so I um, have a pea patch in the city's pea patch program. I actually just recently moved to a uh, very desirable pea patch that actually has sun. <laughs> um, so I have been out in the garden constantly, and that's kind of what my weekend looks like: um, digging up potatoes and planting stuff, and hopefully keeping the um, the pea patch people um, off my butt because uh, they tend to get vocal when my stuff uh, gets a little out of control. So. Um, <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm getting on it. I swear. Be bad. That's awesome. And son, that that makes a huge difference. Canute, what's making you smile, buddy? Well, this is a, a story that Amanda wrote about that made me smile. Was uh, the changing of the name of Harney Channel in the San Juan Islands between Shaw and Orcas uh, to Caillou Channel, uh, named after a, one of the first elected uh, indigenous uh, representatives in Washington, and uh, and Harney, who uh, William Harney, who general, who it was named after, was not only uh, you know key to almost instigating war with Great Britain during the Pig War, but he was a monster. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> I, it, I'm just delighted that uh, that change was made. Very appropriate. Excellent. I'll tell you, uh, one of the things that's really making me smile is the Owell Rain. They are making me smile because that's our women's soccer team, if everybody, if somebody doesn't know. Not only will they take on the hated Portland Thorns on Sunday in a fierce rivalry game, but we can remind the Thorns and all of their fans that we have a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient on our team and they don't. And, of course, I'm talking about the great <laughs> Megan Rapino, who was at the White House this week uh, for the honor. Uh, also, the Seattle Sounders take on the Portland Timbers on Saturday. So it's a rivalry weekend, and I am so here for it. Go Sounders. Go rain. All right. Uh, that's 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 it for our show today. Uh, thank you for listening to the Week in Review. Our panelists today are Crosscut and KCTS9 editor-at-large Knut Berger, Publicola publisher and editor Erica Barnett and Seattle Times General Assignment reporter Amanda Zoe. Our show is produced by Kevin Kniestead. And, of course, on the boards is the dancing destroyer Bernard Ouellette. Thank you so much for doing this, and thank you all for listening. Please be kind to each other and have a wonderful day, everybody. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.